0: Keep government open for the next six weeks. The House of Representatives votes to keep the U.S. government open for 45 days. Now that short-term spending bill goes to the Senate for a vote. For Saturday, September 30th, it's All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm David Gurra. Coming up, could Congress be on the verge of avoiding a shutdown? We'll have the latest. And in New York City, a new effort to fight rats new yorkers will now have to put their trash in bins not just plastic bags
1: no one wants the little mickey mouse in that in their homes i'm very afraid of them very afraid
0: (laughs) and there's a new version of mortal Kombat. why the violent video game has remained so popular for so long
2: suddenly parents are going to go out and buy this cartridge and you know let their kids you know rip out hearts and pull off heads in the living room
0: first this news
3: Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Janine Hurst. In a significant last-minute reversal, the House today voted to fund the federal government. As NPR's Jimena Bustillo reports, the broad bipartisan support in the House puts pressure on senators to accept, accept rather the stopgap and avoid a shutdown. Lawmakers in the House voted
4: 335 to 91 to approve a 45-day extension of federal funding. If passed by the Senate, this would avert a highly anticipated federal shutdown. House Speaker Kevin McCarthy for weeks refused to consider any spending bill that would require the support of Democrats. But facing the potential for a politically and economically harmful shutdown, McCarthy reversed course this morning, specifically calling on Democrats for help passing the bill. And all, but one did. The legislation includes $16 billion for disaster aid and would extend the authorization for the Federal Aviation Administration through the end of the year. The legislation does not include money for Ukraine. Jimena Bustillo, NPR News, Washington.
3: And as NPR's Deepa Shivaram reports, the White House says they expect the House to consider a separate bill for Ukraine.
4: A White House official tells NPR that they fully expect House Speaker Kevin McCarthy will bring a separate bill to the floor shortly. The official also noted McCarthy has stated his support for aid to Ukraine. Funding for Ukraine is widely supported by the White House, Congressional Democrats and many Senate Republicans. But McCarthy's stance on funding in the past has been unclear. At times he's supported Ukraine's fight against Russia but has also expressed reservations about accountability. The White House says President Biden has been getting updates about congressional proceedings throughout the day. Deepa Shivaram and PR
3: News. Armenia says more than 100,000 ethnic Armenians have crossed into Armenia, spelling the end of the enclave of Nagorno-Karabakh in neighboring Azerbaijan. MPR's Peter Kenyon reports the country's traded accusations as 80% of the enclave fled to Armenia.
5: In Goris, an Armenian city near the border, a tent complex sprang up offering food, medicine and other services to refugees. After standing in line to be registered, they hauled what remains of their belongings onto buses, heading for destinations around the country. In Azerbaijan, officials announced the detention of the former foreign minister of the Armenian enclave, which is set to be dissolved later this year. Azerbaijan's defense minister accused an Armenian sniper of killing one of its servicemen, a charge Armenia denied. Peter Kenyon, NPR News, Garis, Armenia.
3: In central Illinois, at least five people are dead. Several others are injured after a truck overturned, causing thousands of gallons of the toxic substance anhydrous ammonia to leak from its cargo. And that release led to the evacuation of homes in a one-mile radius near the crash. Police say several vehicles were involved in the crash, and the National Transportation Safety Board is investigating. You're listening to NPR News.
6: This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Susan Levy in Boston. Members of the Massachusetts congressional delegation voted for the 45-day funding extension to keep the government running. House Minority Whip Catherine Clark. Today, Democrats have ensured that those interests, the American people have won out over the demands of mega
1: extremists.
6: Congressman Seth Moulton cast a yes vote, even though the package does not have money for Ukraine.
7: The problem is a lot of Republican support is behind the scenes. They're scared to go out in public and vote or say that they support Ukraine, even though they know it's an important investment in our national security.
6: Congressman Jake Auchincloss of Newton agrees that there is House support for Ukraine. He spoke to CNN after voting to keep the government running.
8: Ultimately, support for Ukraine has to come to the House floor for a vote. The votes are there to pass it. We've seen that in repeated amendment votes uh, for Ukraine aid in smaller increments.
6: Congresswoman Lori Trahan says the funding crisis could have been averted if Speaker Kevin McCarthy honored the debt limit agreement he struck with the president earlier this year. A live report from Washington coming right up on weekend, all things considered. A 22-year-old man is under arrest after he allegedly shot his mom and her friend inside a Lexington home. The Middlesex District Attorney announced the arrest this afternoon. Last night, police responded to a call for help from one of the victims. The two women are in stable condition. The city of Salem is gearing up for a crush of tourists. This weekend marks the unofficial start to the city's busy Halloween season, Last year, city officials pleaded with visitors to use public transit to reduce traffic congestion. Red Sox are on the road against Baltimore tonight. The Revolution host Charlotte FC tonight. 61 degrees at 5.06, partly cloudy tonight, a low in the low 50s. Sunshine tomorrow, low 70s. On Monday, sunshine near 70. Tuesday, sunshine near 80. This is 90.9 WBUR. Stay with us for Weekend, All Things Considered. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by the Wallace Foundation, working to develop and share practices that can improve learning and enrichment for young people and the vitality of the arts for everyone. Ideas and information at wallacefoundation.org.
0: It's all things considered from NPR News. I'm David Gura. Congress may manage to avert what seemed inevitable just a few hours ago, a government shutdown that would have started just after midnight. At least lawmakers are part of the way there. After a chaotic day on Capitol Hill with the House and the Senate dueling over when to vote, the House of Representatives has approved a short-term spending bill. And if that government shutdown is avoided, many will breathe a sigh of relief, including, one would guess, Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen. I spoke with her yesterday as a potential shutdown loomed, and I asked her what it would mean for the U.S. economy.
6: So it's really reckless and will impose immediate harm, which will intensify over time.
0: Those economic and political consequences weighed heavily on lawmakers again because the deadline is just hours away. Well, as the clock ticked closer to midnight, House Speaker Kevin McCarthy made a surprising reversal after weeks of insisting any spending bill had to appeal to hardline conservatives. He announced a new plan and asked House Democrats for their help. What I am asking, Republicans and Democrats alike, put your partisanship away. Focus on the American public. Let's dig deeper into what happened today and what it could mean going forward. I'm joined by NPR political reporter Jimena Bastillo and NPR congressional correspondent Deirdre Walsh. We're going to get to what this means in just a second. But Jimena, it was a wild day up on Capitol Hill with a lot of back and forth about who would go first. I understand someone pulled a fire alarm at one point. Give us a sense of what it's been like at the Capitol today.
4: It was definitely a little bit of a chaotic vibe. Uh, We had a conference meeting of the Republicans this morning as they all gathered to meet with House Speaker Kevin McCarthy. But as they all trickled out, there really was not a complete sense of what the plan was you know, coming out of that meeting. We heard different combinations of different lengths of time, that there could be an extension of funding, different details. And it really wasn't until McCarthy himself announced the 45-day extension that the House ultimately did pass, that we knew that that was going to be the plan. But then there was the question of, you know, would Democrats go for this?
0: So that was the vibe. Uh, Deirdre, I mentioned this a minute ago, but after weeks of trying to get these hardliners to come on board, House Speaker Kevin McCarthy changed course rather suddenly. Why was that? Was it just deadline pressure, pure and simple?
9: It was that, but the fact that he couldn't pass anything. Time after time, he gave in to the demands from the conservative members on the far right of his conference, but they kept blocking his efforts. I mean, they embarrassed him yesterday Mm. with taking down his own bill, 21 of them uh, defected. Moderates from his own swing districts were feeling that political pressure that you mentioned and they kept warning how bad a shutdown was going to be for the party. I think it was really just a matter of when, not if, McCarthy would go to the Democrats. Getting ahead of the shutdown was better politically for those vulnerable members. Remember, he only has a four-seat majority in the House and he wants to keep it in the next election. Also, by pushing a continuing resolution that has current funding levels, but taking Ukraine out, he was able to really sort of shift the political narrative. Democrats could agree and also get the disaster money that a lot of them want, um, or the fight over shutting down the government would end up being about Ukraine.
0: Deirdre, you mentioned that margin, which is so slim I can count it on on one hand. What did the House Speaker say about his prospects when he talked to reporters after
9: this vote? I mean he clearly knows that there is a threat to oust him florida republican congressman matt gates has vowed to bring a resolution to the floor you only need one member to do that he basically said if you want to take me out for being the adult in the room go ahead and do it i mean house republicans expect a vote many believe it will happen by the end of the year to get rid of mccarthy a lot of these hardliners said if you work with democrats we don't want you to be the speaker anymore that vote could happen basically as soon as Monday. The one thing that McCarthy has going for him is he did get a majority of his own members to back this bill, so that helps him respond to those who say he's not listening.
0: Jimena, hey, what did it take for House Democrats to get on board with this, this last-ditch effort?
4: Mm-hmm. So 90 Republicans did vote against the bill, which is uh, notable mostly just because in his last effort to pass something to, to keep the government funding, he lost republicans on that plan and so this was more Um, the last plan he only lost 21 hardline republicans this went up to 90. however as Deirdre did mention most republicans did vote for the plan Um, but at the end of the day this bill passed because 209 democrats got on board and he passed the bill with their ability to do that
0: Deirdre we've got 45 days if this passes before we're back in the, the same place just before thanksgiving what is your sense of how the political landscape changes or would change between now
9: and then i mean i could see us back in the same place in 45 days i mean republicans are going to try to keep passing their individual spending bills they've had a lot of fights over those bills and i think you know the big question we're still waiting for is is will mccarthy still be the speaker um, can he hold his members together and argue like, look, we avoided a shutdown, let's keep negotiating over our broader goals to cut spending. If we keep passing these bills, we can negotiate with the Senate. Sort of unclear whether he can keep his members on the same page on that.
0: Amanda, very quickly here, do we know anything about the timetable going forward when the Senate might vote on this?
9: Uh, Not necessarily.
4: (laughs) (laughs) A lot of things are still to be determined. Uh, The Senate could vote this evening, as soon as this evening, and that is about as much clarity as we have right now.
0: NPR political reporter Jimena Bastillo, where that uh, uncertain vibe continues up on Capitol Hill. (laughs) NPR congressional correspondent, (laughs) Deirdre Walsh, thank you both very much for your time.
9: Thank you. Thank you.
0: I want to bring in Democratic Senator Chris Van Hollen now. He represents Maryland, which is home to some 160,000 federal workers, workers who will very well be going back to work on Monday if this bill passes. Senator Van Hollen also sits on the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, and he's been a vocal supporter of sending aid to Ukraine, which, as you just heard, is not included in the temporary funding bill the House passed this afternoon. Senator Van Hollen, welcome to All Things Considered.
5: It's great to be with you. Thanks.
0: Let me ask you first off here, if this is a bill that you can support, I know you've been caucusing with your Democratic colleagues. Uh, Is it something you can get behind?
5: Yes, I I will support this uh, bill. I think it's very important that we keep uh, the government going. Uh, This bill does that at current levels and also provides disaster assistance. Uh, So the answer is yes, I will be voting for this bill.
0: I mentioned how many of your constituents work for the federal government, and I wonder what you've been hearing from them uh, as this deadline has grown closer and closer.
5: Well, I've been hearing a lot of understandable anxiety, uh, not just from federal government employees, uh, but from others who will be negatively impacted or would be negatively impacted by a shutdown, uh, which is virtually every one of my constituents, uh, certainly if a shutdown were to be prolonged. Uh, So avoiding that is obviously a very important step, keeping the government open so that we can address the other issues as well.
0: I laid out those competing stakes here yes keeping the government open uh not at this point sending aid to to ukraine how do you juggle those two things do you see this short-term spending bill
5: as as a victory of any kind i do see it as a victory uh, because it keeps the government open for 45 days look i would have rather gotten a full year uh budget passed uh, but given where we are and where we were uh, this is a positive step forward look i also preferred the senate bill i preferred to have the funding for Ukraine assistance uh, in uh, this bill, but, and I want to emphasize this, uh, you do have bipartisan support uh, in both the House and the Senate uh, to continue supporting the people of Ukraine in their fight against Putin. And I'm absolutely confident uh, that we will get that done uh, in the next 45 days.
0: What do you say to those who are characterizing this as as a loss for Ukraine? There have been growing numbers of congressional Republicans. Questioning the U.S. financial commitment to Ukraine and today's events, I suppose, could give that more momentum. Are you are you
5: concerned that you won't be able to pull this back in a final deal? I, I'm absolutely confident that we will be able to have continued assistance to Ukraine in a final deal. I'm confident that the president will speak uh, later today after the Senate passes this bill and the, the Senate will pass this bill. Uh, underscoring once again our commitment to uninterrupted assistance for Ukraine uh, and again, what we saw in the House was finally uh, Speaker McCarthy uh, being willing to take on uh, some of his right wing MAGA Republicans. Uh, of course, in order to pass this, he needed uh, Democrats. And you heard that a lot more Democrats voted for this uh, than Republicans. Uh, and those Democrats are going to be insisting uh, in, on support for ukraine uh for the people of ukraine in their fight against uh, putin's war of aggression so you have bipartisan majorities in the house and the senate to do that we just got to get it done in the next 45 days but you're bet in a better position to continue to support ukraine when the u.s government is open than when it's shut
0: so much changed between when i had breakfast and when i had my sandwich at lunch you, you know that well uh, and i wonder how much this surprised you this change in trajectory that we saw on
5: capitol hill today Yes, it was a surprise. Uh, We expected uh, to have a cloture vote here in the Senate, uh, meaning to get uh, over 70 votes, Democrats and Republicans, uh, to send the uh, Democratic uh, and Republican bill over to the House. That had been the trajectory when we woke up this morning. Um, The House obviously took this action. And so things have changed. One thing that has not changed, though, is our commitment to make sure that we get funds to support uh, the people of Ukraine. And as I said, uh, better to have the government open uh, than shut as we try to do that. If this passes, you and
0: your colleagues have 45 days to find some middle ground. Uh, your crystal ball is better than mine when it comes to what, what's going to happen with Congress. How likely do you see things changing, that you see some comedy and, and, and sides coming together here uh, again if this bill passes over the next 45 days?
5: Well, what you see is the beginning, a little crack uh, in uh in the House where Speaker McCarthy until today uh, had been essentially doing the bidding of the very far right uh, wing of his caucus, the MAGA wing of his caucus. Uh, so this may, but I hesitate just to say may, uh, open that door further to bipartisan action uh, in the House of Representatives. Democrats were essential to getting this done. Uh, we do expect, many people expect a, a challenge. Speaker McCarthy coming as early as next week from Mm -hmm. within his caucus. So uh, in order for us to get stuff done, we're going to have to do it together, Democrats and Republicans.
0: That's Senator Chris Van Hollen of Maryland. Senator, thanks for the time. And you're listening to All Things Considered from NPR
3: News.
6: On 90.9 WBUR, coming up at 6, the Moth Radio Hour.
3: We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Umbrella Arts Center, presenting Lizzie. Lizzie Borden finally gets her say in this ghost story meets rock concert musical, now through November 5th. More at theumbrellaarts.org and Ocean State Job Lot, whose charitable foundation strives to make a positive impact on its communities. More at OceanStateJobLot.com.
6: 60 degrees, cloudy at 518, partly cloudy tonight, low 60s, sunshine tomorrow, low 70s. Thanks for listening. I'm Susan Levy.
3: WBUR supporters include Babson College, who believes the future is fueled by entrepreneurial leaders. Learn to lead with impact and become a driving force for change. Explore Babson's full-time in-person programs and part-time in-person and online programs at their graduate virtual open house, October 4th and 5th. Register at babson.edu gradopenhouse. I'm Janine Herbst with these headlines. On the brink of a looming federal government shutdown, the House today passed a stopgap spending bill to keep the government running for 45 days. This after House Speaker Kevin McCarthy dropped plans for steep spending cuts and relied on the Democrats for help in passing it. The measure now goes to the Senate, which is also meeting today. After record rainfall in New York City yesterday that swamped roads, the subway, and caused planes to be delayed, cleanup is underway today. There were no deaths but some 28 water rescues were performed. And members of five unions, including the Teamsters, voted overwhelmingly yesterday to authorize a strike at three casinos in Detroit. This overpay and other issues. I'm Janine Herbst, NPR News in Washington.
10: Support for NPR comes from this station and from Proven Winners with Proven Winners Color Choice Shrubs, offering a varied selection of species to bring year-round interest to landscapes and gardens. ProvenWinnersColorChoice.com slash Native Shrubs. From Indeed, designed to be an end-to-end hiring solution for businesses of all sizes to attract, interview, and hire candidates all from a single platform. Learn more at Indeed.com slash NPR and from the Doris Duke Foundation.
0: This is All Things Considered, I'm David Gurra. Before my colleague Scott Detrow took off this weekend, he got back into Mortal Kombat, a video game from his childhood. Really into it, actually. A friendly warning, because this is Mortal Kombat, there are sounds of over-the-top video game fight scenes. When writer David Craddock was
11: 10 years old, he walked into an arcade with his dad. <sighs>
0: We are going
2: into the arcade, where I would normally play games like Golden Axe, Final Fight, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. And when I got into the arcade, right at the entrance, there was this mob of people surrounding an arcade cabinet. The crowd was so thick, you actually couldn't see what game it was. And on that screen, I look up, and I thought I was looking at a martial arts movie. I saw the screen go dark, and I saw one... Uh, punch his hand through the opponent's chest and rip out his heart. Kano wins. Fatality. And that was when my dad,
11: who was standing behind me, goes, nope, 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 and escorted me out of the arcade. That game, 1992's Mortal Kombat, a video game that quickly became known for its over-the-top violence. It took arcades, and later American homes, by storm.
2: Suddenly, parents were going to go out and buy this cartridge and you know, let their kids you know, rip out hearts and pull off heads in the living
11: room. Soon it grabbed the attention of members of Congress, like Democratic Senator Joe Lieberman of Connecticut.
2: Like the Grinch who stole Christmas, these violent video games threatened to rob this particular holiday season of a spirit of goodwill.
11: But more than being just a lightning rod for moral outrage, Mortal Kombat became a pop culture phenomenon with comic books, toys, movies.
2: It's not just a great fighting game. It is actually the best selling fighting game franchise of all time.
11: 30 years on, millions are still playing Mortal Kombat. A new version's out now. In fact, last week, I was dismembered by my co-host, Juana Summers. Could really use that in real life.
9: Love this. Okay. Well, we
11: describe that you just kicked through my chest I my en- vine- oh! I think I just drove two fans
12: into Scott's skull. Get on
11: the way. Oh.
12: That was very satisfying.
11: This little bout of bloody competition in the new Mortal Kombat game happened right here in the All Things Considered office. But back in the day when Mortal Kombat first came out, these kinds of battles happened at rowdy, crowded arcades. And Mortal Kombat's signature violence was just one way the game differentiated itself from all the others.
2: Part of the -the over-the-top violence, not just the blood, but you know, uppercutting someone and knocking them 20 feet into the air (laughs) was a way to kind of catch your attention. No different than Killer Instinct a couple years later with that announcer who would shout, Operators would crank the volume up to 11 because they wanted you to be across the arcade and go, oh, what's that? And kind of make your way over to the games.
11: That's writer David Craddock, who you heard from earlier. His book, Long Live Mortal Kombat, chronicles the history and legacy of the series. In fact, he's been writing about the game for a while now.
2: My first paid writing job was as a sixth grader. My mom got me the strategy guide. I went to our school's computer lab. I typed up all the fatalities printed out like 50 copies and sold them for a quarter each.
11: All these years later, he's still writing and thinking about it. The game still has those fatalities. <laughs> but in a lot of other ways, it's changed. For example, new Mortal Kombat games aren't released in the arcades. Serious competition happens elsewhere, in big online arenas at esports events that draw tens of thousands of viewers.
4: And that's going to be it. The breakaway is used. And the
12: ground. Seals the deal, Ninja Killer has done what no MK11 player has ever
11: done before. Wasima Belmoussi became a fan of Mortal Kombat at a tournament in the Netherlands.
6: I was thinking first like, oh, am I getting accepted as like a girl, a woman? So for me, it was like really hard to make a choice. But then I was like, hey, I need friends who like share the same interest and passion and stuff.
11: And she found that in the competitive Mortal Kombat scene.
6: Yeah, it was like one of the most fun experiences in my life.
11: Now, better known by her handle Losty Girl, she plays the game on the streaming service Twitch. It isn't just the competitive scene that's grabbed the attention of newer Mortal Kombat players like her, though. It's the game's story, which has 30 years of lore to draw from now. Dalmusi says her favorite character is Melina, often a villain in the series and often pit against her own sister, Kitana. But in the latest release called Mortal Kombat 1, that relationship has changed.
6: A mother is only trying to protect you, sister. I was always dreaming about Melina and uh, her sister, Kitana, being like besties. I was so glad, like, oh my gosh, they made my dream come true.
11: That's just one of the ways co-creator Ed Boone is trying to continue to engage fans. Ed Boone, get over here. <laughs> I'm already there. <laughs> <laughs> that was a polite laugh, I'll take it. We asked him how he went from making pinball games to building a multi-generational franchise.
7: In 1986, I went for an interview with a company called Williams Electronics and I was under the impression that it was for a video game programmer. And at the interview, I was kind of learned that it was for a pinball programmer. Ah. (laughs) And so I joined kind of with the hopes that eventually I could move over to the video game department. And that's exactly what happened. I programmed pinball games for about three years and then joined the the video game department uh, after that.
11: What were the original conversations like? Like, what was the first idea? What were you trying to do when when you first started thinking up uh, what became Mortal Kombat?
7: This was in 1991 and uh, a game called street fighter 2 had come out uh right it was it, you know it's a similar kind of format mm-hmm. to fighters basically in an arena fighting more sonic booms fewer scorpion throws yeah <laughs> exactly you know and they had kind of like a, a an anime art style right it was hand-drawn our main focus was with digitized graphics right like we would point a camera at a person and record them doing a motion, and that's how we would make our sprites, our animations. And we were thinking, you know, I bet you if we did a photorealistic version of a fighting game, like Karate Champ or Street Fighter or whatnot, we can really stand out visually. That was basically the base conversation that started that.
11: When did you first realize how big of a hit it was? Is there, is there a particular moment that sticks in your head of like, whoa, this, we, we made it, this is a thing?
7: It wasn't until the next year that Acclaim Entertainment pulled me aside at a Consumer Electronics Show, and they put in a videotape, and it was basically the commercial, the TV commercial, that famous one of the kids yelling "Mortal," you know, "Mortal Kombat" Mm -hmm. in the in the streets of New York. They said something like, "We're going to put ten million dollars." in the marketing of this game, it's going to be the biggest thing ever. And I remember saying to them, you know, Hey, I think you might be over investing in this, (laughs) you know, and kind of assuming it's going to be bigger than it is and I could not have been more wrong
11: what are the biggest differences in in creating a video game now compared to back then I mean obviously the technology is is exponentially different the platforms are exponentially more powerful it's so it's so much more part of the culture than it was back then how does that all change how you start thinking about like the planning and the production and the scripting and all of that like what are the biggest differences
7: well you 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 hit the nail on the head. The technology is exponentially bigger um but in addition the the scope of the game is exponentially bigger um you know to give you an idea the first mortal kombat game was four people doing the entire game and it was just one programmer myself two graphic artists john tobias and a guy named john vogel and an audio composer engineer uh a guy named dan ford and he's the guy who come who pokes his head out and says toasty uh, in the game. Toasty!
11: Nine-year-old me would have demanded that I ask you, like, wh- why, what What was the backstory on the toasty guy?
7: At the time that we did Mortal Kombat 2, we realized how effective uh, hidden features in the games were, you know, mysteries, basically. You know, mm-hmm. what is that? What's, what's that character standing there? So with Mortal Kombat 2, Dan Forden, the uh, audio engineer, he used to say, he used to use the phrase toasty all the time. And so I thought it would be funny um, when you do an uppercut to make the uh, <laughs> his head come out and say... Toasty! It would just make the player go... What the hell was that?
11: Could you, if you put in a certain cheat, could you get to the final level if you put it in when he said toasty? Because that was the hot rumor in school. And I never knew if it was true because I could never get it right.
7: What you could do was... If you, if when the toasty guy came out, if you held, I think you held down on the joystick and you hit the start button, then a secret fight with a character smoke would come up.
11: I tried so many times.
7: Yeah, and that was undocumented. Again, a lot of the secrets that we put, we never documented. We never told people how to do it. it. It just became a seemingly random event that would just get somebody talking and go run to their friends and say, I swear I saw this.
11: So the hot rumor at lunch was you get to the final level. I'm glad that you're a fact check. That's right.
7: That's right. You know, one of the storylines
11: of this all along, at least in the real world, is is the various ways that people have reacted to the violence over time. Mortal Kombat was was right in the middle of, of, of kind of culture war panic moments of, of congressional hearings and in the middle of political campaigns and things like that. What was that experience like for you? What did you make of that time?
7: You know, video games were maturing and there was no rating system. And that was the main objection right you had this violent game coming out and there was no rating system like you know you'd see explicit lyrics label on a on a cd and so that was the kind of the uproar that had happened and we were like yeah that makes sense and by the time mortal kombat 2 came along the rating system esrb had come along and uh we were rated m for mature and ever since then that whole issue has been you know really not really there
11: but, of course for for so many players, the violence is the appeal, and it's not just just violence. it's it's cartoonish, over the top, finishing moves. you know it, it's so violent, it's funny in a way at the end. What are the pitch meetings like? Like how do you come up with the fatalities and the moves like that for the for the next version of the game? what How do those conversations even start?
7: You know, we have to come up with you know forty, fifty fatalities per game. So it's not like one person comes up with them it's pretty much a committee there's there's a committee of team members anybody who really wants to attend and they sit around and they throw out ideas and the ones that resonate with the group are usually okay let's storyboard that out and see how it looks and then they'll send it to me and then i'll either say no 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 we're not going to do that and that's for sure or i'll say okay yeah let's do this but let's punctuate this moment let's do that yeah.
6: <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
11: Who's your favorite Mortal Kombat character? Scorpion. And you you do the voice, right?
7: Yeah, yeah. Get over here! Oh! Oddly, I have the Guinness Book of World Records of uh, the longest voice uh, <laughs> representing a, a, an, a video game character. I just edged out Mario by like four months or something crazy <laughs> like that. <laughs>
11: and, and I think he, he just retired, so you can, you can expand that record.
7: <laughs> he did. He did. I actually felt bad when I read that. So.
11: Scorpion wins. What do you hope the lasting legacy of Mortal Kombat is or will be?
7: Um, the lasting legacy. Well, it's probably unrealistic, but I'd like to think that its legacy is going to be something similar to DC Comics or Marvel Comics or something, you know, the, the Star Wars, right? An, an ensemble type of license that has tons of characters all of which could be spun off into their own thing. Some people call it a forever franchise, right? Like you're, you're never going to say, okay, well, that's the last, you know, DC comics we're ever going to read. There's an assumption that DC will always be around. And I'm hoping that Mortal Kombat is eventually put into that category where there's always an assumption that it's going to be around.
11: That's Ed Boone, co-creator of Mortal Kombat. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me.
0: Detro will be back next week, giving him time to bounce back after that brutal Mortal Kombat battle against Juana Summers. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. To Libya now, and a rare look at the struggle to recover from massive flooding there three weeks ago. In this North African country run by feuding rival governments, rescue and recovery efforts have been hindered. NPR's Ayah got into the country with a rescue and aid team from the United Arab Emirates, and she joins us now. Tell us where you are and what you've been able to see so far.
13: Hi. Um, yeah, I'm in eastern Libya, about an hour's drive from Darna And I, I went to the city this morning. This is the city that was hit by massive floods around three weeks ago. And the apocalyptic scene really starts at the gates of the city. Um, right when you drive in, you can see all these mangled cars everywhere um, that have been pulled out from the rubble. And we drove under a bridge that doesn't exist anymore. Just the shell of a bridge It mm. was completely washed out in the flooding. And we saw graffiti on uh, on a building that said uh, darna will not die. But the reality is the heart of the city is gone. Um, I stood in the valley where the, where the floods had just rushed through when two dams broke from this heavy rainfall, two dams that uh, Libyan activists and others say for years there had been warning signs that they need to be maintained and they were not. And so when they rushed through, they just took everything in its path. And it was just 360 degrees of utter destruction. It's just hard to imagine that there were homes here at one point. Um, and now we still don't know what the death toll. I mean, the UN humanitarian office says confirmed deaths are over 4,200, and there are still around 9,000 people missing. And the fact that we don't know exactly how many people have died this far out really just shows the disarray that's happened.
0: We've seen reports that local and international journalists have faced growing restrictions in Darna. Were you able to speak with survivors there?
13: Well, because I'm here with an A-team for the United Arab Emirates, and this is a country that supports the eastern government and authorities here, we weren't stopped at any checkpoints. But I didn't have unfettered access. Um, we were, you know, surrounded in a security bubble with this Libyan Rapid Intervention and Defense Force, young armed Libyan men in fatigues. Um, but I was able to speak to a, a man named Idris Abdullah. He's a father of eight and an engineer and a man who was born and raised his whole life in Darna Um, And he's among 40,000 people displaced now by the floods. His family survived because they were able to climb to higher floors of the building and his building was not washed away to the sea. But, you know, here's what he basically said.
6: So, you know,
13: without pause, he said, look, I'm not talking about the West or anything else. I'm just saying what Darna needs now is international support. UN support needed to rebuild the city on international standards.
0: Is aid getting there and making any kind of impact?
13: There is aid definitely coming in. Um, Look, like, you know, Russia, Egypt, and the United Arab Emirates certainly had the biggest presence here at one point. Um, Egypt and UAE are still here on the ground, and they're not only rushing in to support the people affected by these floods, but they're coming in here to stabilize Libya, the eastern part of Libya, and also to support its leadership run by a military strongman who actually just met with Vladimir Putin in Moscow this week. Um, And the U.S., for example, I haven't seen them have a visible presence on the ground, and that's for security reasons. You'll recall that the U.S. ambassador was killed in Benghazi in 2000. 2012 here, but the U.S. special envoy to Libya has met with officials in Tripoli and Benghazi since the floods, and there has been some U.S. aid coming in as well.
0: You mentioned the complaints about the integrity of these dams before they collapsed, and I wonder how much of this catastrophe was caused by climate change or this was the result of government failure.
13: This was a perfect storm of not only more intense weather likely caused by climate change, but also what happens when extreme weather hits a country that's mired in chaos with, you know, a uh, failed government, corrupt government. Um, and This country has been in conflict ever since the Arab Spring of 2011 when Muammar Gaddafi was ousted.
0: That's NPR's Ayah in Eastern Libya. Ayah, thanks. Thank you. Listening to All Things Considered from NPR News.
6: This is 90.9 WBUR. Glad you're with us. I'm Susan Levy. Lawmakers are getting closer to avoiding a government shutdown. The deadline is midnight. The House has approved a 45-day funding bill to keep federal agencies open, sending the bill to the Senate. Stay with WBUR for the latest developments. You can listen to the news at the top of the hour and join us tomorrow morning at 8 for a weekend edition Sunday. And stay with us at 6 tonight for the Moth Radio Hour. It runs until 8. At WBUR, we occasionally offer you the opportunity to win prizes in conjunction with our fundraising efforts. A pledge is appreciated, but it is not required to win a prize. Employees of WBUR and Associated Sweepstakes entities are not eligible for any drawings or contests. For complete rules, go to our website, WBUR.org. 60 degrees at 539, partly cloudy tonight with a low in the low 50s and sunshine tomorrow, low 70s.
3: I'm Janine Herbst with these headlines. The White House says it expects the House to consider a separate bill for Ukraine aid soon after the House today passed a short-term stopgap funding bill that didn't include money for Kyiv. It's not clear, though, if Speaker Kevin McCarthy is on board. The 45-day bill did include money for U.S. disaster aid. It's now in the hands of the Senate. Ukraine is trying to reduce its dependence on foreign military aid. And yesterday, officials met with more than 200 arms manufacturers and defense ministers from several countries to increase Ukraine's production of weapons. And today's the deadline for states to spend their share of the child care stabilization money that Congress passed during the pandemic. I'm Janine Herbst. and NPR News.
10: Support for NPR comes from this station. And from Made in Cookware. Made in Cookware is crafted by chefs for use in restaurants and home kitchens around the world. Their cookware can be found at madeincookware.com. From the Rockefeller Foundation, making opportunity universal and sustainable for over 100 years. And from Heather Sturt Haga and Paul G. Haga, supporting African Wildlife Foundation, working to ensure the future of Africa's wildlife and wildlands. Learn more at awf.org.
0: This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm David Gurra. Now for a story about fighting an all-too-common urban scourge, Rats. For decades, New Yorkers have thrown out their garbage in plastic bags on city sidewalks. They haven't used bins. Until now, city officials are starting to require more hard-sided trash containers. and As Austin Cope reports, they hope it will slow the city's growing rat population.
8: It's a Friday night in Manhattan, and Alton Mitchell and I are standing in front of a row of apartments with a big stack of black trash bags out in front. You can hear a few very faint, high-pitched squeaks in the background.
2: Right now we see just a bunch of garbage that's out there and we see, we hear rats actually making noise. So they, they're talking
8: and saying, hey, we're being on the radio too. They're actually not quite close enough to the mic.
2: They're making a lot of noise, which is very scary because if you walk down the block, you never know. They're, they're running right across your foot and who wants to get bit by a rat?
8: But what does that have to do with the trash bags?
2: a lot because they're inside those bags. They are, you know, you, you're you scared to walk by because they are in, they they're eating whatever is inside the bags.
8: So right. what would you do if you were walking by these bags right now? I'll cross the street. <laughs> I'll walk in <laughs> the street. Really? I do, I walk in the street. Really?
2: You know, but then you don't want to cross over to the other side because there's bags on the other side too.
8: This is exactly the kind of thing officials here are hoping to solve. New Yorkers put out around 44 million pounds of trash each day. Since the late 60s, most of it has gone right onto city sidewalks like this one. New Yorker Ocean Thomas says it's no wonder there's so many rats.
1: When you visit other towns, right, you, one of the first things you notice being a native New Yorker is that, wow, these towns are so clean, and it doesn't stink. And the thing that stands out the most is that, one, the trash is not all over the place, and if it is trash cans that are out, they're contained.
8: Now, the city started making people put their waste in bins. As of the past couple months, large businesses have to do it, and so do restaurants, grocery stores, and other places that serve food. Next March, all businesses will have to. Private residents don't yet, but officials say more rules are on the way. Finding where to put all this garbage isn't necessarily easy. Victor Edwards lives in a neighborhood where the city's testing out new containers in the streets.
5: If you look across the street where cars are parked, you will see that it takes up
8: approximately four parking spaces. Edwards leads a community board that represents residents' opinions. He hopes the city can plan for more than just the past. We definitely want to get rid of rats. I'm not saying I want to live with rats. But by the same token, I want to take in consideration all the other factors. uh, Physically challenged people who have to carry these bags now and lift them up and put them in. Uh, Our seniors, the same thing, and then parking. Officials hope to balance out larger bins in the street with smaller ones on the sidewalk. But they say there will be some trade-offs. Danielle Mills lives in the Bronx and owns a car. She's okay with containers in the street, since sometimes people just throw their trash there.
14: Taking up parking anyway, so I would prefer the bins to be there, and I don't have a problem with sacrificing parking to make sure that, you know, we keeping the streets clean and cleared from garbage.
8: And for Tamika Jordan, it really gets back to the rodents.
14: No one wants the little Mickey Mouse in their their homes.
1: I'm very afraid of them, (laughs) very afraid.
8: (laughs) She hasn't had any at her place, but she's seen some near where she works. So as more bins go in, she's glad the rats will have a harder time reaching their next meal. For NPR News, I'm Austin Cope in New York City. More than 30 million Americans identify as belonging to two or more races,
0: and that number is on the rise. For some kids who grow up mixed race, big questions about their identity might not start to emerge until early adulthood, when they're already out in the world on their own. That was the case for Anita Rao, the host of North Carolina Public Radio WUNC's podcast Embodied. It's a show about sex, relationships, and health. Anita takes it from here.
14: As a kid, the way I thought about my racial identity was uncomplicated. I'd look in the mirror and picture myself as exactly half and half. The right side of my body, Indian and brown. The left side, British and white. I grew up in a small city in the Midwest, and my family was active in our community, so I never felt like I had to explain my racial or ethnic identity to anyone. People just knew. Fast forward to 2007. I graduated from high school in the same small city and moved almost 1,000 miles away to go to college. And in the months that followed, I had almost daily experiences in which I felt super aware of a dissonance between how I felt on the inside and how other folks perceived me. While some people knew immediately that I was mixed or had Indian heritage, others thought I was white. And the more new encounters I had, the more confused I became. Should I have a short phrase I use to explain myself? Do I just assume that if it's an encounter that matters, identity will naturally come up? Looking back, I can see that the questions that emerged for me as an 18-year-old signified a shift into mixed-race adulthood. It's a transition that a lot of our listeners had thoughts about, too. My dad
9: is Black and my mother is white. But if you were just a person passing me on the street, you would not think that I was biracial. When I tell
12: people I'm biracial
9: or when people find out there's like this snap response where people will be like, no, you're not. And am like, yes, I, I am, I'm biracial. My dad's black and my mom is white. No, you're not. I get that so often and I don't know why.
12: I'm really proud of my identity. I'm proud of who I am.
1: I think when I was a kid, I cared a lot about being understood. You know, people just see me and see my face and don't see a picture of my family and don't know about my family history. And I feel like one of the things that I've gotten better at is kind of understanding what people are asking and why they're asking and just giving the information that people are looking for as opposed to, like, the whole version of the whole story.
7: I was about even 19 or 20 and I had my first relationship at the time and I remember I was set to meet her mother. We got to the dinner that night and during the entire dinner her mother didn't acknowledge me. She wouldn't look me in the eyes. Although I felt like my entire life I have been racialized as nothing other than white This was my first time really experiencing anti-Blackness. I think that was a a wake-up call for me. Sometimes, you know, having lighter skin has, I would say, advantages. But that was the first time really in my young, developing ages that it really felt real in that type of way.
14: Those are just a handful of the stories our listeners shared with us about growing up in mixed-race families. What it's like to be mixed is highly specific to each person's context, and also ever-shifting. Some of the first big changes are brought on by the simple act of getting older.
1: I think when I was growing up, there was definitely less of a conversation around being mixed. Like, I definitely was cognizant of the fact that I was mixed, but it was never something that really was, like, cast into sharp focus for me until I got to school, and I felt like I needed to be, like, categorized to a degree um, by my peers in order to fit in.
14: That's Audia Seiler. She's 21 and a rising senior at the University of the Arts in Philadelphia. Her dad is Black and her mom is white. She grew up in a Pennsylvania suburb and has some distinct childhood memories of noting racial dissonance. Like when she was little and her mom was struggling to figure out how to do her hair or when she got together with her dad's side of the family at big gatherings and didn't quite feel like she belonged. As she transitioned to college, she started to reflect more on how all those small moments of her childhood fit together.
1: I go to school in Philadelphia, so it's obviously like a very, very Black city. There are a lot of ways in which I've been given more opportunities to explore my Blackness and my relationship to my Blackness within like a new context. At my like my original high school or when I was coming up through elementary school at the very white institutions that I was attending, I didn't feel safe enough to explore those parts of me without like criticism. So I would kind of let myself be like the butt of jokes or let myself be like the only black person in a given situation. And now I feel like there is so much blackness around that I have like the option to kind of explore in ways that I wasn't afforded when I was living in my like small town growing up.
14: Another person in the midst of that transition to adulthood is Claire Gallagher. She grew up in LA as a mixed Chinese and white person. Although the city itself is racially diverse, her private high school wasn't. And she too experienced being the butt of some racist jokes.
12: People would make jokes about like me being like a bad driver or like having small eyes, stuff like that. But I think people were really interested in being politically correct. So I think that directing those jokes at me felt more comfortable to people, like almost like it was mm. like more acceptable because I also am white. And that, like proximity, I think, made the jokes feel like they weren't offensive. So, I think it was kind of like taking advantage of that.
14: You do have a sister. i'm I'm curious about that relationship and the conversations that you all uh, had growing up about racial identity and, physical appearance because often siblings don't necessarily present exactly the same way i know that's true for me and my siblings i'm curious about your experience
12: yeah we don't really talk to our dad side of the family and it was kind of something that we would almost use against each other Mm -hmm. growing up i think people have always said that she looks a lot more like our mom and people would tell us that she looks more chinese and that i look uh whiter And we would, in a snarky way, like tell each other, like, you're being so white right now, or like, you're Chinese, like your accent's so bad, your accent's so white, saying those things to each other to hurt each other, um, because we really wanted to be like our mom. But now, I mean, we've like matured and moved past that. But I think I always kind of like a little bit resented her for looking more Chinese in a lot of family situations growing up. Like if we'd be with our family eating at a restaurant and the waiter would speak to everyone in Chinese and then speak to me in English, I felt really hurt. And I felt like, okay, like, am I not seen as being part of my family? So I think I resented her for that for like a long time. But, you know, obviously it's like siblings are really important in like support systems. So obviously I'm trying to not um, still feel that way.
14: As y'all are talking about this, I'm thinking that I really haven't talked with my parents much about my reflections on feeling different from my siblings. I'm curious about if you all have, Adi, I'll start with you. Like, is this something that you talk to your parents about or does it really stay among siblings?
1: I talk to my parents about it a bit, but I always feel as though their own relationships with their race are so different than mine mm. that I do find it difficult to like fully get them to understand and to a degree, like I completely get it. Like my father is like, a dark skinned black man and my mom is white. So I feel like it's hard for either of them to fully get it. And I don't pass judgment on either of them that because i think that makes a lot of sense i mean they're completely different identities but i do think that it's something that i don't know if they thought too much about it (laughs) before they had us so i've tried to talk to them about it but i find that maybe it's because of how they grew up or when they had us like early 2000s that they find it i think more effective to talk about race but talk like a little bit less about like what it means to be like a mixed like interracial family i guess
12: i feel like i really agree um, about like, I don't really think it was something that my parents thought about when they had me and my sister. I really haven't had that many conversations about being mixed with my mom, but it's kind of interesting because I think that me and my roommate have had a lot of conversations about our anxiety about having kids.
14: Yes.
6: and talk to me more we, about that.
12: <laughs> like we have like a lot of anxieties around like who we have kids with and then what our kids would look like and what that means for how we go about different cultural practices. I mean, my mom makes a lot of jokes about like if me and my sister have kids with a white guy that everyone will think she's like the nanny and no one will think she's related to us.
14: No, that is so, so real. My sister met her husband when she was in college and he is Indian American and they have kids who definitely look Indian. And I'm in a partnership with a white person and I I feel so much longing for what I know that her kids will experience that my kids wouldn't of just not being perceived as Indian in a certain way or being perceived as very white and that that grief is very real and very confusing. Adi, I'm curious about how you're thinking about that and does that shape how you date and who you date at all?
1: Absolutely, I feel like very like seen by like what you said, Claire, that I feel like I do have like a lot of anxieties around it and it does shape the way in which that I go about dating. For me, I know a big part of my Black identity comes from having my Black family. Like I have my dad and I have my brothers and my home base feels like Black. So even if I'm at a PWI, even if the friends that I'm making lean white or my partner is white, I know that my core, like at my core, I have that connection. So I think when you are dating white people, there is like this fear that if you are going to create this new sense of a family, that there is like gonna be that missing. That has always been like a big anxiety of mine and something that I'm like very curious about. I am dating somebody that's white right now. And I find that that's a big discussion I'm also in, like, a queer relationship, so that's, like, an interesting dynamic when it comes to, like, if we do have kids, like, how are we, you know what I mean? Like, how do you go about that? Like, do you adopt? I'm, like, very against, like, adopting outside of, like, a race that either of us identify with. So it's, like, a very interesting sort of conversation around, like, who do you end up with and how do you center your blackness while also honoring like the fact that you are with a white person. It's like a very interesting thing that, and I think like anxiety is a good word for it, like what Claire said, because I think there can be a lot of shame around the idea of not leaning into the part of your identity that is marginalized in order to propagate this like new world, but it's a complicated thing for sure.
0: That was Anita Rao, host of the podcast Embodied from North Carolina Public Radio, WUNC.